I think the thing that we need to sacrifice or surrender is really our will. And if we can, if we can get rid of that, then everything else is really not sacrifice. <laughs> it, it's right. really not. It's gain. This is the Redemptive Edge from Praxis. On this podcast, we talk to people who are building businesses and nonprofits that look at the world differently, or we'd say redemptively. They're aiming to renew culture through acts of creative restoration. Rather than using people to advance their mission, they aim to bless people. And they're led by people who aren't living for themselves or even just satisfied with improving themselves, but people who aim to die to themselves so that something beautiful can happen in the world. That's the redemptive edge. It's not so much somewhere you've arrived as a journey you decide to take. And this podcast is about stories from that journey. I'm Andy Crouch, partner for theology and culture at Praxis. My guest on this episode is Pete Oakes, the founder and chairman of Capital Three, an investment firm that owns and operates privately held companies in the US, Honduras, and Mexico. I think my favorite of their portfolio companies is Seat King. If you've sat on a really nice, well-made seat on a lawnmower or a boat or an ATV, it's very possible it was made by Seat King. But what Capital Three's companies produce is not really as central as why they exist, which is to increase wealth. Now, you might say, yeah, that is the purpose of all private enterprise. But as you'll hear, Pete Oakes' definition of wealth is probably very different from any you've heard before. And who that wealth is being created for is radically different as well. And when Pete serves as a mentor for our business accelerators at Praxis, we consistently see people's eyes widen and jaws drop as they realize what his life is about. Let's actually start with whenever you first knew or sensed that you would be an entrepreneur. When did that word become something you imagined would describe yourself? I grew up on a farm and we were, you know, and being in the farming business, you do a lot of things yourself. So very early on, I came to understand this uh, self-responsibility and the and the fun and the creativity that you can have by doing some of those things. So I think I, I had that in my uh, DNA early on. I went to uh, college, got a degree in finance, uh, came out and went to work for a commercial banking operation. And I spent eight years doing that. And it was a terrific experience. If I wouldn't have had that, I'd, I wouldn't be where I was today. But Probably three or four years into that, I just had this entrepreneurial itch and I wanted to, huh. to do something different. So at the age of 25, I started writing my first business plan or my first personal plan, I should say. So I wrote huh. my first personal plan and it said by the time I was 30, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So over the next huh. five years, I began to work on that. And actually on my 29th birthday, I went to my wife and I said, we have one year before I'm going to be an entrepreneur. 
And so uh, six months later, I walked into the the owner of the bank and I'd worked myself up uh, through the ranks and told him I was going to be an, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so that started the whole process. When did your wife find out that this was part of who you were going to be? She had found out in my early 20s when I had written that personal plan that I really wanted to, to be an entrepreneur. So she knew that was always in my DNA. And yeah. I'd actually helped two or three other young men start companies while I was in the bank. So she knew all along. Uh, unfortunately, at the age of 30, I had a one-year-old and I had a whopping $11,000 saved up. And so, uh, you know, all I can tell you is she was a woman of faith, both in me and in the Lord. So I think yeah. probably the two of those uh, was were enough impetus to, to push us over. Wow. So I want to hear more about the personal plan, why you had the idea to do that, and what did it cover back at age 25 for 25-year-old Pete Oaks? Like, what did you want to include in that plan? So I think I had read a book, and the book was talking about, one, you need a mentor in your life, and two, you need a plan in your life. So I began to ask around Wichita who were uh, some really strong Christian businessman who could lead me through this process, and two names kept continuing to come up. So I called both of those men, and both of them said, oh, we'd be happy to meet with you every month and just walk through life with you. Interestingly enough, uh, one of those men is still alive today, and I have not made a major decision in the last 40 years without asking him. Wow. So the power of mentorship has just been a a really powerful thing for me. So one of the things he showed me, and he started talking to me about this personal plan, and I began to write goals down, and then every quarter I would just share those with him, and we'd work towards those. I would say a personal plan has probably been one of the, the things that has really impacted me in my career almost more than anything I've done. Other than God's Word, a personal plan is right in there at number you know, three or four next to God and my wife. Uh-huh. So when you think about that initial plan, what uh, deviated from plan as you kind of lived it out over the next few years? Yes. It's interesting. I have a copy of that original plan, and I have a copy of every subsequent plan every year since, believe it or not. So what was interesting to me, one of them was that I had literally listed out exactly almost to the dotting the I and crossing the T as to what I'm doing today, believe it or not. Wow. That was my my dream— and I just never thought that would happen. Uh, I really wanted to I wanted to run an investment company. I wanted to do it with a group of people who I really trusted and liked. We wanted to do it in a very different God-honoring way. How would you describe your risk profile? I'm a ready-shoot-aim kind of guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so caution is not high on your... On your values. Well, no, it's not. And, you know, it's interesting because the biggest mistakes I've made in my life is where I, I pulled the trigger before I aimed. Ah. And I think one of the greatest lessons I've learned is that is where really godly wisdom and godly counsel comes in. So describe what, uh, what you started to build um, in, your, in your 30s and, and what your first uh, kind of mission was. Yes. I was a commercial banker, 
And as I looked at my skill set, I had grown into a loan officer position. So I was helping a number of clients that were customers of the bank. So I began to see things and I would Mm. work with them. And it just seemed pretty straightforward to me if they would do this or do that. They could grow the business and make a change here or there. So when I left the commercial banking business, I started my own investment banking company, primarily a consulting company. We started out soliciting a few sellers that came in, sellers of these middle-sized companies. But very quickly, we gravitated to buyers only. So buyers would come in and then we would just uh, go on a hunt. We'd find a business for them. We'd help them do the due diligence. And we started buying a dealer to ourselves. So we started putting our own portfolio of companies together. And this was in the early 90s. So towards the late 90s, we wound that we had uh, five companies in our portfolio. I had a partner who wanted to retire, so he retired. When we did that, we shut down the investment banking business and rolled uh, into being principals only in this uh, portfolio of mid-sized companies. And so you moved from the kind of consultant advisor position to the principal owner position. And I'm wondering, was it exactly as you expected or or different as you started to actually operate as opposed to just advise and uh, transact? Yes. Uh, Andy, I think it, it was fairly close to what I thought it would be. Although I think the big difference was during my 30s, when we were in the just almost purely the investment banking business, over that next 10 years, we had uh, really good success. And financially, we were successful. And at the age of 40, I really realized I had been successful but not satisfied. So at that point in time, I spent some time with my mentors again, just saying, you know, what do I need to be doing? And so I was first introduced to this concept of stewardship. And when I understood Hmm. stewardship versus ownership, it was, it shook my world. I was, uh, you know, I'd always taken pride in being a 90-10 guy. I wanted to make a lot of money, so my 10% to charity and to God was a big number. So, (laughs) and you can imagine what I was going to do with the other 90. (laughs) Big plans, no doubt. (laughs) So when the whole, when I figured out that it was zero mine and a hundred gods, then uh, it really changes the way you look at life. So at that point in time, we started almost another journey. This new journey you started on that you realized I'm missing actually the satisfaction that I wanted or that I would want. What were some of the key moments in in pursuing that new vision and picture? So being in business, I really came to understanding that my business was not mine. I was a steward. And so the yeah. key performance indicator not be, became not the bottom line, but how much money I could give away. And so, unfortunately, I mistook stewardship with financial generosity. So during the 90s, during the Uh, next 10 years, between the ages of really 40 and 50, we we bought these companies, we slimmed them up, we grew them, and we flipped them. And then 9-11 hit. We rolled into the 2000s. Uh-huh. And 9-11 hit and our businesses uh, declined 50% in 60 to 90 days. And we went from making a lot of money to losing a lot of money. 
we went from being very generous financially to not giving anything away. And I looked at God and I said, don't you understand what I've done for you? Why, why are you putting me through this? You know, once again, here came these mentors to my rescue. But I really came to the understanding that, you know, God didn't want my money. He didn't need my money, but what he wanted was me. And so I think I really became cognizant of this whole thing of surrender. So I would say from 2001 till today, we've now been on the the surrender journey. But um, unfortunately, I probably still spend too much of my time in what I call the mushy middle of satisfaction, the mushy middle of Uh mediocrity. One foot (laughs) in the world and one foot over here in the kingdom of surrender. And um, here is the thing for me to get all the way over to the right takes living every day by faith. And faith is the issue that that creates my stumbling. (laughs) My faith is just too weak. Uh, Let's talk about kind of what started to change in maybe what you were looking for in businesses or what maybe you weren't looking for it, but you found it anyway. And you ended up with a different kind of portfolio maybe than you had before and a different kind of labor force. So after 9-11, we really changed our business philosophy to one where I would say we really went from uh, pursuing economic success that we could then uh, funnel into the kingdom to, to I would say, a more holistic approach. And I was introduced to this whole concept of flourishing at that point in time. So as we began to study this concept of flourishing, what does it really take to flourish? And I think it takes material provision. I think it takes deep relationships. And I think it takes a purpose or a moral code to live by. And over the years, we've defined that in our business as economic, social, and spiritual capital. So as we began to pursue businesses that had this triune approach to the bottom line, and we had a rapidly growing business in a small town in Kansas, and we needed a, we just couldn't find enough manufacturing employees to work. There happened to be a maximum security prison in that town. And we started hiring work release inmates. So they would literally take inmates and bring them over to our business. We'd work them during the day, and then they'd take them back at night and house them in the prison. A few months after doing that, the warden came to us and said, Pete, you know, if you could figure out how to move part of your business actually behind the walls of this maximum security prison, I've got 1,200 guys looking for a place to work. And I thought, wow. This is perfect. And so the state actually has manufacturing space inside of these prisons that they employ people, but they're doing state jobs versus private industry jobs. So Kansas is one of the leaders in private industry and prisons. So they encouraged us to move in. And so in 2006, we moved in. We moved, uh, oh, probably five employees behind the walls of a maximum security prison and started growing that business. In 2009, with the downturn, we have a, an agreement with the state of Kansas that we have to lay off um, inmates before we lay off civilians. So we literally shut down the prison business in 2009. Then when things started coming back in 2010, uh, I really liked what was going on in the prison. So we started moving some work back in there. Then we also acquired a company that was going through bankruptcy because of the 2009 downturn. We moved it in behind the walls of a prison. 
So today we have uh, about 180 inmates in two prisons. One's a maximum security and one's a medium security prison in Hutchinson, Kansas. There are about 100 civilians uh, that work for us outside of the prison in Kansas. And then we have uh, 200 or 225 folks that work for us in Zacatecas, Mexico. Literally, we can build product in Mexico, and once it's finished, we can have it to our customer within about two days. It may be worth mentioning at this point that there are a lot of states with private industry and prisons, and those states have widely different policies, some of which make for very cheap labor or really arguably exploitatively cheap labor for private firms. But in Kansas, where Capital Three's companies operate, private employers pay the prevailing outside wage for the work that is done and never less than the minimum wage. And as you'll hear, Pete goes above and beyond fair wages to create many other kinds of opportunity for his employees. So let's talk more about uh, what it's like to work in the prison. I mean, let's start just with you personally. I don't know how much exposure you'd had to uh, behind the walls of prisons before you started seeing the possibility of locating your, your workforce there or locating your, your production process there. What was it like to be there the first couple times? I don't know. What, what do you remember? Uh, a prison is an ominous place. Big walls, lots of barbed wire, lots of concertine wire, lots of clanging gates, and, uh, you know, a lot of scary-looking guys. <laughs> And uh, I actually didn't have very high hopes that it would work. And it, but it was interesting, yeah. Andy, because it was it didn't take two or three months for us being in there, and we started growing that workforce fairly rapidly. So you know, before long, once we were in the prison, we had fifteen, twenty, twenty-five. And as I got to know these guys, I really came to understanding that they were. Maybe the only difference between them and me was that they got caught. But gosh, I think God just did a work on me. Uh, huh. As I got to got to know these guys, and I never realized the importance of work. I just took work as uh, it's just something we all did. Gosh, when we got in there and put these guys to work, all of a sudden we started, their heads were held a little higher, their chests stuck out a little bigger, dignity. Gosh, I'm telling you, work gives you dignity, and they they love to work. And then all of a sudden, you take and you give them work, and then you come alongside of them, and you actually treat them like a, a human being and treat them with respect and start casting vision for them. Those two things just fired me up. So probably within two or three months, I went back to our senior management team, and I said, look, guys, we are going to start a program we're going to have the best prison in the United States of America. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to have the best inmates. So we just hmm. started creating a whole new culture in the prison. So how have you invested in that kind of holistic flourishing in a place that a lot of us would think that it would be very hard to imagine what it would be like to flourish as an inmate uh, in for a long time? Yes. So the whole point of prison is really to break the spirit, I believe, of wow. the offender, because wow. a lot of them are just hard-headed, tough guys. They've grown up on the street. They've become tough, and they need to be broken. Prison will break you. I, I would say it breaks 100% of the people that are in there at one time or another. The problem with prison is once they break them, they don't start rebuilding them. And this is, a, I think, the biggest problem that we saw. So 
with that said, we, we go back to this philosophy of flourishing we have. You know, you need material provision, and we, we give that, we help them get that by providing them a job. The second thing they need is deep relationships, and we work really hard. Everybody from myself to anybody who comes in there, uh, we work really hard in creating great relationships with them. And then the third thing is you need a, a purpose for living. And I talk to these guys all the time. You know, I share with them my purpose for living. And, and I think my purpose for living is glorify God and enjoy Him every day. So we do whatever we can to help them. We have, um, on the social front, we, we offer a fathering class. We offer personal finance classes. We offer, you know, we have talks on investment. Once a month, we like to come into the the president, either myself or one of our senior management folks, and we'll talk about one of our values. We have four values and 12 virtues in our business. So we take one of those and we, we talk about that. And then we try to tell them why that's important. Yeah. We have found that one of the things we did, we started a seminary in the prison. So we graduated eight inmates. It's a three-year program. We, we graduated eight of them about a year ago. We now have 30 wow. in seminary. And they'll graduate uh, in about a year and a half. Um, it's amazing what that seminary has done for the prison. Um, huh. We're just seeing uh, huge strides. They're doing a lot of the uh, first responder mental health triage counseling now. It's given these guys a whole new reason to be in prison to help their their fellow man. What do you think has changed in you because of the time you've spent behind bars, as it were? And What's different about Pete Oaks because you've been you've spent some time inside? It's interesting. I went when we got this vision to have the best prison. The whole vision was to um, transform those men. I'm the guy that's been transformed. Huh. I think when you see these men who are absolutely broken, it just shows you how very clearly uh, life can be very difficult. And it just points out um, all these things we chase that are really insignificant. I love the parable of the Good Samaritan because, you know, the priest and the Levite were walking down the road, saw this guy that had been beat up and left for dead laying beside the road. It says they even walked around him. But then you have the Good Samaritan that came along. And you see, the first thing that he did is I believe that he took care of his material provision. He provided him economic capital. He picked him up. He took him to the hotel. Yeah. He bought his room. He bought him food. The yeah. second thing he did was he he started a relationship with him. He started creating some social capital with this guy. And I think if we lead with economic capital and follow with social capital, the doors to sharing what can be a real purpose in life uh, fly open. You may remember that the name of Pete's firm is Capital Three. That's the Roman numeral three. And that signals his key idea that there are three fundamental forms of human welfare that he and his partners want to invest in at the same time. There's economic capital, which has to do with money. There's social capital, which has to do with family and friendship and community. And there's spiritual capital, which involves knowing your ultimate purpose in relationship with God. And what makes Pete's work so powerful to me is that he aims to free people from poverty in all these areas, not just one. And he has an interesting take on what we ought to even mean by the words capital, wealth, and poverty. 
I define poverty as just not having enough. When we talk about poverty, I think there are three forms of poverty. Yeah. You can be you can be not have enough material possession, you can have no friends, or you can not have a purpose in life. And you know, you can love Jesus all you want, but if you don't have food to eat, you're not flourishing. Okay? Huh. You can have lots of food and lots of money and have no friends and I don't think you're flourishing. So right. poverty is lacking any one of those. Wealth, on the other hand, is enough or sufficient material provision. It's having good, deep relationships and it's having a good purpose in life. And for those of us who are Christians, that's that's knowing this fellow Jesus and following him. Okay. Yeah. So we define wealth as sufficient material provision, a good amount of relationships and, and a purpose and, and knowing Christ. I think some people have been given capital. And I define capital as excess wealth. It's more than you need. So in one sense, wealth is this amount of stuff that we have that's not at risk and it's for our own personal consumption. On the other hand, capital is the excess wealth that we have that we should put at risk. It can be money. It can be friendships. It can be spiritual capital. I'm an entrepreneur, we're in business, so we've been blessed to have excess economic wealth. We have economic capital. So I believe it's incumbent on me to put that at risk. I have friends who are multimillionaires in social capital. They are out there. We all know these people. They're constantly Uh, introducing us and doing uh, whatever they can to foster the common good with regard to relationships. I think the biblical mandate for social capital, because it's dealing with relationships, is to love your neighbors yourself. So the question for us Mm -hmm. that we always ask, typically on a quarterly basis in our business, is how do we love our employees as we love ourselves? So Mm -hmm. all the things that I get to do, do I make those available to my employees? Mm -hmm. And so over the last five years, we've really tried to work to uh, to make sure that all of us in some sense have access to, to those social benefits. And that means engaging our employees in helping uh, each other. So I remember the very first time that I spent social money, all right? I was walking through our plant. There was a lady there that I knew well, and her husband had been struggling with cancer, and he had ab- actually passed away. And I went up and said, uh, how are you doing? And she said, uh, you know, I'm really doing pretty well. And I said, is there anything I can do for you? And she said, well, just don't lay me off or don't fire me from this job because I have $6,000 funeral bill that I uh. need to pay over the next few years. Huh. And I just thought to myself, crying out loud, well, I didn't say anything to her, and I just walked up to our CFO, and I said, call that funeral home and just pay that bill. So taking those kinds of risks, spending Uh, money on our people and on things that you wouldn't normally deem as necessary, uh, those are the kinds of risks that I think we need to take with our people, and they're relational risks. We need, I think the biggest risk for me is standing in front of my people and telling them who I am and what I believe. Because when I do that, I've gone public with what I believe, <laughs> and it all of a sudden I have to live up to that standard. Wow. And yeah, yeah. that is the biggest risk for me, Andy. 
We talk at Praxis about redemptive entrepreneurship. That's become the way we articulate what we're aiming for in the world. And then, of course, the question is, what is redemption? And we think it has something to do with restoration through sacrifice. What have you had to sacrifice that is sort of offer up? You know, you you had that moment uh, at, at the midpoint in, of your life, in a way, where you, you began to seek surrender. What have been the, the sacrifices that you've had to choose? I think the thing that we need to sacrifice or surrender is really our will. And if we can, if we can get rid of that, then everything else is really not sacrifice. <laughs> it, it's right. really not. It's gain. It's, you know, 20 years ago, the best thing Deb and I ever did was capped our lifestyle. And we thought that was sacrifice. No, that's been the that's not sacrifice. That's the best blessing we have ever had. So from the world's perspective, when we think of sacrifice, God just turns it into the opposite. The sacrifice is a blessing and not a curse. It's not another rule necessarily that we have to live by. You mentioned something that I'm not sure everyone listening will will grasp what, what you meant by about capping your lifestyles. What do you mean when you say you have capped your lifestyle? 20 years ago, when we were doing well financially, and we were also able to be very generous, we went to a conference. And one of the speakers at the conference challenged us with uh, asking the question, how much is enough? Hmm. And so instead of increasing our lifestyle 20 years ago, every time our business grew, what we essentially did was say, we need to live a middle-class lifestyle, and we're going to set that. And then every year we'll increase it one or two or three percent kind of based on inflation. But we're not going to, if we can afford more things, we're not going to buy more things. And that's been uh, two great benefits. One that has freed us up from accumulating a bunch of stuff. And number two, that's allowed us to be continued to be generous more than we would have been if we would have increased our lifestyle as our business grew. Because our our business has, has grown, you know, phenomenally over the last 20 years. So it's been interesting to see how that works. I think the question is not necessarily how much is enough. If you ask that question, you tend to put that in terms of how much is my net worth. Just a quick story. At this uh, particular conference where the person asked us how much is enough, there were four of us entrepreneurs who walked outside and began to say, well, how much is your enough? You know, how much is enough for you? We couldn't answer that, so we agreed to get together a few months later and talk about that, which we did. So we all came with it up with a number, and we said, uh, when we get to that number, we're going to give everything above that number away. Well, within a few years, we had all outpaced that net worth number, and we kept continuing to meet annually to encourage each other. And the problem was all of that net worth was held in privately held companies. So for us to give that away, we would either have to sell all or a portion of our company, which none of us felt we were doing. So then the real question became not how much is enough. Why is the first two million mine and everything else God's? Or why is the first five million mine and everything else God's? The question is, it's 100% his. So if we've been gifted to make money, economic capital, then let's make as much as we can. The real question is, how much should I be paid to manage the assets, to steward the assets he's given me? 
So uh-huh. at that point in time, we said, look, the question is not a net worth question. The question is really a lifestyle question. So that's when we decided to cap our income. And all four of us have done that. All four of us meet three or four times a year, 20 years later. And we talk about our lifestyle. You know, a month ago, we took a little fly fishing trip and spent two days talking about our lifestyles. One last question. We see redemption. It starts with sacrifice. It really starts with this fundamental sacrifice, you know, of self and following in the footsteps of Jesus, of course, who laid himself very literally on the altar as a sacrifice. It leads to restoration. And so I'm wondering when you look around you, and this could be in your own life, your family or, or community or prison or however you want to take it, what has been restored or is being restored around you that wouldn't wouldn't have been restored, even if you just had the sort of successful life you dreamed of as a young man. But but what's been restored beyond your hopes or expectations? So first of all, it just has to be relationships. I look at my family, you know, I've got a son in the business. I've got a daughter that lives in town. They've got, we've got eight grandkids. I'm starting with family here. I look at many families that are uh, broken and And our family, while we're not perfect, I can tell you, gosh, we love each other. We love to be together. We're together every week. And so I just see this whole thing of family uh, being restored. I think uh, my generation, we couldn't wait to get away from our families. We couldn't wait to get away from our hometowns. We wanted to go out and make our way. It's interesting because I see my children's generation as wanting to come back. And so I'm, wow. I'm very encouraged in seeing this wow. whole thing where uh, I see a lot of our friends. Uh, I can see, and I, I'm, I'm commenting here on, on Wichita, Kansas, but the, the redemption of our city, the restoration of our city, over the last four or five years, we have, uh, we see the churches coming together. We see the people coming together. Uh, we see the city coming together, I think, in a better way. And we just can ha- we just have to continue to work on that. So I see really a redemption of this whole social fabric, which is very encouraging to me. Hmm. The last area I would say is, you know, I just got back from India. And I was hmm. over there with 150 or 200 Christian entrepreneurs and business people. And it's just so encouraging to me to see how uh, people in an absolutely different culture than mine. They just think differently. They eat different foods. They, they're they just different. But when we came together, we were family. We were restored through the person of Christ and what he's done in each of us. And that was just such a, a very powerful thing to see. Pete Oaks of Capital Three. I love Pete's definition of wealth as enough. With everything above enough being capital that you are meant to risk. And I love the steps he's taken to limit what he needs to be enough so that he has more to invest, more to risk, and others having wealth, others having enough as well. If you want to know more about Praxis and what we do, visit us at praxislabs.org, praxislabs, all one word, .org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It's by far the best way to help other people find the show. We'd also like to address your questions, and we're preparing a bonus episode based totally on questions you have, so just leave them right in the review, or you can also give us comments and questions on our website at podcast.praxislabs.org, where you can also get show notes and transcripts. 
The Redemptive Edge is produced by Mary Elizabeth Goodell, who in her day job is community manager for Praxis, with executive production from Scott Kaufman. And frankly, this takes so much time that it is his day job, but he is also our partner for content. And we're very grateful to Narrativo for their editing and production help. I'm Andy Crouch. Thanks for joining us on The Redemptive Edge. Redemptive Edge.